Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Okay, I have a bunch of things that I need to tell you right now before I forget them all. Uh, Number one, uh, today we started uh, changing how we are teaching part of our our children. Uh, So our upper elementary class met at 9.30 this morning, which you may not have realized slash remembered until you showed up here at 10.30 and realized your child's class was gone, disappeared. Um, Don't worry, it didn't disappear. It just started early. So what we're doing is teaching uh, those kids before church uh, so that they can be here in the worship service with Um, We also, to help them while they're here in this service, uh, have sheets. I don't know how to describe them. Note sheets uh, that they can use to either doodle on or follow along and write down things that they've heard. So uh, if you're, you're a parent of a child who is doing this for the first time, doesn't have much experience, Um, This is teaching time for you and your child. We want you to leave the service, not right now, we want you to leave after church is over, and then talk through with them what they heard and what they learned. Uh, They may have retained, you know, a fraction of a percent of what you did, which is fine. It may be that they retain just as much as you did, which means you either have a brilliant child or you need to pay attention better. Um, and I'll let you figure that out. So uh, what that also means is how we're going to get the rest of our kids back in here is going to be slightly different. If you've been here before, you know that for years we've had a break in the middle of our service to go get all of our kids. That break is, is going away. Um, did somebody just cheer? Did that happen? Um, Yeah, some people are super excited about that. Um, So what's going to happen when I'm done preaching is the band is going to come back up and we're just going to move straight back in to to worshiping through song. Um, So what we'd like you to do is to send one parent, if you have kids back there, to go get your kids and come back as quickly as possible uh, because worship is going to keep on moving. Uh, We want our kids to be a part of the service in the second half, so don't take as long as possible. Just go and get them and bring them back in here. And we are experimenting with how we do this. So in a couple weeks, we might change how that works a little bit if if it's not working well. So we ask for your patience. Uh, But I will remind you again when I'm finished and coach you along through what that looks like. Secondly, um, you hopefully are aware that uh, a year ago, almost exactly, Uh, An EPC pastor ministering in Turkey uh, from this community by the name of Andrew Brunson, um, he was arrested and imprisoned under false charges and is still in prison. He's not been released. Um, What all he's gone through is uh, impossible for, for us to imagine. And we desperately want him out. and We want him home. There have been, he, his name has been discussed between our president and the president of Turkey uh, a couple of times. The, Erdogan, the, the, the leader of Turkey, is, is using Andrew Brunson as leverage to get bad dude back. And it's just not clear right now what the resolution is going to be. So the EPC is asking that our churches 
would use next weekend, the 7th and the 8th, for a, a time of, of concentrated prayer and even fasting on Andrew's behalf. So uh, we're, we'll have something for you that Christ Community, his, his home church, uh, made to help you pray. We're going to have that for you next Sunday the 8th, and we'll talk about him some more and pray. But uh, as we go into this week, I ask that you would, we would pray on Andrew's behalf, that God would set him free, uh, and that the truth would come out that he would stop being used as political leverage. Okay? Third thing. I really feel like I've already forgotten a thing. Um, I wanted to to mention something in conjunction with something that's going on. Uh, we've been updating our our, our website uh, and making it whatever more usable on the back end. I can't explain it to you. It looks great. That's what I can tell you. Um, on our website for the first time is a spot where you can give online. Uh, we've never had that before. We uh, just didn't have the capability before. I'm pointing it out to you because right now we are in the process of planning our budget for, for next year. And uh, I know that plenty of people come to our church uh, and don't give to our, to our church for any number of reasons. If you're a guest here, please don't. I mean, you're not under any pressure to give at all. Um, and some people come regularly here, or even members here, never give to our church. And a lot of times people say, I just forget. I forget to bring money. I forget to bring a checkbook, because some people still use those. Um, and just, it slips your mind. And one, I'm, I'm hoping that this would be maybe a tool for you to, to help do that. You can go to PayPal, set up just regular giving, and it will draft you every month, and you don't have to remember. It will remember for you because the robots are smart. Um, and maybe this is something where, because of how easy it is, you, you just give once, and you've never given, you haven't given this year, you haven't given a long time, or, or at all. Um, that, that is important for a number of reasons. One, which we're talking about today, this is not disconnected from the sermon, um, Money is, is not viewed in the Bible as, as, a, as a safe thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a safe thing either. Um, it's just really easy for riches to ensnare your heart. It's really easy to waste your money and to be led aside by your appetites. I would encourage everybody here to view giving as a discipling activity. I am not telling you if you give to the church like your life will be better. Not at all. Uh, people who give not only their possessions, but their time, their resources to Jesus, a lot of those people die horrible deaths, okay? So I, I'm not up here telling you, if you give $20, I will give you a blessed rag that will make your problems disappear. There's no like magical anointing packet that I will mail you in the mail. Nothing like that. I'm not telling you your life will be easier or anything. What I am telling you, though, is that uh, money is something, an arena that Jesus, that Scripture talks about often, and is a discipling arena of our life. And if you are not being discipled in that, that area, whatever, use an online tool, give here, I don't care, but be discipled in that region because that thing will come and get you. Um, and as we are making our budget for next year, as our local church 
I want to challenge you to give to the local church for reasons that we will, I'll talk about at length this morning. Um, it has become more and more common for people to say, it doesn't matter if I give to the local church. It matters that I give. One, that is historically out of step with how people have had a relationship with the local church. Two, it is good for you if you are a part of this body. And again, if you are a guest here, this is not for you. If you are a part of this church, it is good for you to invest where your heart is. And just real practically, we have kids that we are trying to build a youth group for, that we are trying to be faithful in children's programming for. And if our people don't give here, and not to some other great 501c3, some other great nonprofit, and there are a billion out there, and they are wonderful, and you should give to them too. But if, you don't, if our people don't give here, our kids, for example, uh, have barriers to having youth ministry, have barriers to having effective children's ministry. I'm asking you to help us and to help yourself be discipled in this arena. Where your treasure is, there your heart is, that's, that's Jesus. So I'm, I'm encouraging you to invest here if your heart is here. And if it's not here and you don't want to give here, Maybe that's a different conversation. Maybe, maybe you should be somewhere where you care about uh, investing like that. I want you to be here, but maybe you should look at yourself and say, why do I not want to give money here? I don't, I don't know. I don't know who gives what. I, I can't look at anybody and say, there's the big ones. I'm preaching to you, and I don't, I don't know. So um, I'm just telling you, for, for me and my family, we love this place. And we give here, and we love other 501c3s, and we give there on top, and um, that's important for our heart to keep being shaped so that we are freed from what is potentially a snare, and it's all about our possessions. <clears throat> now I'm going to read Luke 16. This is the parable that I, I had already planned on, on preaching from. I didn't change anything um, <clears throat> so that I could talk about money, believe me. That's not, not what I would do. Luke 16, verse 19, for the end of the chapter. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in, his, in, his, in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest the day also come into the, they may also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we are grateful for your kingdom that has been inaugurated, that has been ushered in, that is among us and growing slowly but surely. Jesus, we pray that we would have our hearts softened to perpetually see who the residents of the kingdom are. We ask, God, that our hearts would match the heart of the king. Jesus, we pray that this word, this parable, would be sown in us like an efficacious seed that grows and establishes roots and shoots out and takes over our hearts. Warm our hearts that our hearts may reflect the heart of the King of the Kingdom. We trust that you'll do this by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of Jesus. Amen. This, uh, this parable is uh, a unique parable. Jesus' parables are usually with unnamed people, and this is one of the rare parables that has uh, a, a named main character, and there's actually two named people in the, in the parable that's really unique. And it's important to understand what this parable is about and, and what it's not about. So it's not about giving you a geography of heaven and hell. It's not so that you can diagram, you know, how close to hell is heaven. Like, are we supposed to be able to shout conversations across? Because that might be awkward. There's the people screaming in torment and Hades in, in the parable, and then there's comforted lads. That's uncomfortable. How does that work? That's not the point of the parable. That's, we're not going to get bogged down in what the nature of heaven and hell is, is like. The point of this parable is about the lives of these two men. It's really about the life of the rich man and what he realizes about the nature of his life and the nature of the kingdom. Now, you also need to know that Luke, of all the gospel writers, has a particular focus on Jesus' care and concern for those who are marginalized, neglected, and despised. He regularly highlights Jesus' care and participation and proximity to the poor, to the Gentile, to women. Luke specifically spotlights this over and over and over again, and we often miss it because those are are less scandalous things in our day. But in Jesus' day, Jesus' repeated care and participation with those people was a kind of statement that people were unfamiliar with as they looked at Jesus. So this parable is actually in keeping, in line with the way that Jesus is presented in Luke's Gospel. Jesus particularly cares about the poor. Now, if you have been tracking along with Israel's story up to the point of Jesus coming into the story, you should be unsurprised that Jesus is so uh, particularly caring about the poor. Because the Old Testament is uniquely and shockingly focused on the plight of the poor. And I, I want to I focus here particularly talking about 
economic poverty, the people who are literally poor, because our inclination in America, uh, we have poverty in this country, certainly, but even our poverty does not look like the poverty that you can find in other places. You know, I, I lived in South Africa where I saw poor people. They, they slept on dirt and did not have their own water source, did not have their own uh, in-house place to dispose of waste. I've, I've seen poverty that makes our poverty look like wealth. But we have poverty in this country. And we have poverty even in our midst. Can I get an amen from a college student? We, we have people who struggle to pay bills, and although our clothes might be nicer than if we lived on the f- dirt floor, um, we still have a, an extraordinary percentage of people in this country who live paycheck to paycheck, and who it is not hard for them to be thrown off the rails and be in dire straits economically. And for the first time, uh, this generation expects to live a less less of an economically stable life than their parents. There's declining economic mobility. There's less of an expectation that you will work hard and be better off. So I'm, I'm not going to say we have it as bad as we could, but I don't also want to say that nobody here is poor. Now, the Bible is uniquely concerned with the plight of the, the actual poor. I don't want to jump into metaphor and say, well, we're going to, you know, poor, what do we really mean? I'm talking about people who don't have money. That's what I'm talking about. Because the, the Bible talks about that regularly. In the Israelite law is repeated command to care for the poor. Let me just give you an example from Deuteronomy 16. And by the way, Tim Keller has a, has a sermon that I'm absolutely stealing from. So if you want to listen to that and hear the better version of this, it's called Blessed Are the Poor. Um, you can feel free to read that, and I will not be offended if you tell me he's better than me, because he is. Deuteronomy 15. This is just one example. I'm not pulling for you the only passage out of the law. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin." You shall give him to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. This open-hearted care for the poor is the mark of, is one of the defining marks of Israel. Because in Israel, in the, in the Old Testament, in the law and in the prophets, there is not uh, a, a looking down, a condescension, a besmirching of the reputation of the poor. What's difficult for us in our day is that our country tends to buy wholeheartedly in to the myth of the bootstraps. That if you are poor, it is because you are not working hard enough. And you are not working smart enough. And it's possible that you're too dumb to get out of poverty. But that, that myth 
is a myth. And if you actually get out of the the middle class bubble and get to know people who don't have a lot of money, you can see and experience how fallacious that myth is. You know, there there are extraordinary stories that provide a counter-argument. My father, my father was born to Cuban immigrants very soon after they came out of this country. I came into this country. My grandmother scraped paint off walls for 25 cents an hour. My grandfather, who was well on his way to being a doctor in Cuba, lost all of his training and credentials and did things like roll cigars and act as a carpenter. Started at the very bottom of an economic scale. My dad's first language was Spanish. He was the son of immigrants who had very little And my dad worked really hard, really hard. And my dad worked his way to success in a way that I am extremely grateful for. I I was still, when I was a kid, I was still in the process of my dad working his way to success so that my life economically as as a young child was very different than when I was in high school. There was a lot less stress when I was in high school than there was when I was in elementary school. So I saw some of the, the, that process happening. But that is extraordinary. That is not normal. We, we tend to hear stories like my dad's and just say, see, if you just work hard, then you'll be better off. And it will absolutely work in your favor. But poverty in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is much more complicated than that. And the Old Testament never decides to start talking about the poor as if they are poor by their own choice. Now, you can find, Keller says, 10% of the passages that talk about poverty will talk about self-created poverty. But 90% of them about will talk about the poor as if they are not poor by their own choice. They do not to be poor. They are not choosing to be poor. They are not being guilt. They are not being guilted for being poor. Poverty is complicated and structural and also personal. And I, I can say that I, when I first left college, I worked in poorer communities with kids who grew up in government housing, and I was watching the effects of the generational and structural poverty in which they were enmeshed. I could see that they were making choices that were in in the immediate and the short term that made sense in the moment, but I knew long term were foolish. And I could not convince them otherwise, don't do this, you want to plan for the long term. Why? Because for their whole life, the immediate is what counted. There weren't people that were telling them that the future is stable enough that they can count on the reliability of the world. They said, if I can cover myself now for a day, for a week, I will make that choice now. Because that's how life is. And it's not just that they learned that. Their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents live that way. And it is not their fault that they were born into that kind of poverty. 
They are making their own choices in a lot of ways. Some of those were foolish choices, but it's not even like they knew that this was foolishness. This was how life worked. And this was the first time in my life where I was living close to people like this, and I was saying, they are not dumb. They are not even lazy. They are smarter than me in a lot of ways. They are harder, working harder than me in a lot of ways. And the only difference between me and them is that my dad worked harder and smarter than I can ever imagine and was rewarded somehow for some reason for his labors in a way that most people are not. If I had been born otherwise, I would probably be worse off than them. The words that are used for poverty in the Old Testament, they're not condemnation. They They are not used to paint a picture of the poor as if they are some lower class, lesser than grade of people. God values and loves and treasures the poor. And He says He intends in Israel that they be cared for to this this extent. Every three years in Israel, there would be an extra tithe that people were required to give on top of what they normally give so that the poor would be taken care of. Every seven years, you were not allowed to harvest your own goods. You were not allowed to work your own land. All of that was to be reserved every seven years for the poor to harvest and to be renewed. You want to talk about a high tax rate, that's 100% every seven years. Every year, you were not allowed to harvest to the margins, to the ends of your field. Because in Israel, the edges of the field would be left for the poor. This was written into the law of Israel, to the government of Israel. This is the structure of it to to hold back systemic poverty. And when the prophets come and start speaking words of condemnation to Israel, one of the chief things that they will indict them over is their treatment of the poor. Never do the prophets come and say, you terrible poor people, Buck up and work harder. Your laziness is why God is judging this this country. They will come to Israel and say, you have mistreated the poor. You have failed to protect. You have failed to provide for. The indictment is always of the rich for their failure to treat the poor. How God has commanded that the poor in Israel be treated. You'll hear this again and again and again in the prophets. And I know my instinct as a middle class white Christian in America is, well, let's just, let's just make that a parable. Let's, let's kind of fuzzy what poor means. So this is a little more comfortable for me and what is required of me now. But it is exactly what it says. In Luke's accounting of the Beatitudes, he does not say it the way that Matthew says it. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke just says, blessed 
are the poor. When Jesus, in Luke's gospel, announces his ministry, there's this famous incident in in Luke 4. He stands up and he takes his turn reading the scroll. He reads from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 61. And it's important, the thing that Jesus reads. He came to Nazareth when he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to sit at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on them. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? The first thing he says, to proclaim good news to the poor. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom, is for Lazarus in this parable. The good news is for Lazarus in this parable. One of the ways that, that poverty is talked about in the Old Testament, one of the words that are used to describe the poor, one, the most common way is, um, is people who have no money, people who lack things that people want. But the other word that often gets translated as the poor is the afflicted or the oppressed. That's actually the word that's here in Isaiah 61, the oppressed, the afflicted. One of the realities of poverty is that you can't even defend yourself from those who have more than you. And it's not, it's, not, it's not a want to, it's not a choice, it's just the reality of the situation. The world is arranged so that the poor would be trampled on. And it's not even on purpose, necessarily. It's just because things are broken. Can I give you an example that may step on your toes a little bit? When when people choose to have their children educated outside of a public school, in a private school, charter school, home school, when their child leaves, what happens to the funding in the public school? It goes down. Are the people who leave public schools those who have money or have less money? The people who have money. Now, is it wrong to want your child to get a private education or a charter school education, a homeschool education, basically a better education? Is it wrong for you to want that for your child? No, of course not. Is it wrong for you to pursue that for your children? No, of course not. But the way things are means that those who have less means are disadvantaged. And the poor don't even have the resources to say, hey, don't take that from me. 
That's the way poverty is described in the Old Testament. It's like being a city with no walls. People can just come in and take from you. And that's not even the intention of people who go to private school or charter school or homeschool. I mean, maybe there's some people that are like, man, I just really want to stick it to the poor people. But from my experience, from my own experience, I went to private school from first through eighth grade. That was not what my parents wanted. They were just trying to get me a better education. But the structure of the world is such that the poor have no defense for themselves. So that even in places where where people are trying to fix this and where school choice is given and you have vouchers, you can go wherever you want, there's still the failure of poor people to have transportation to go where they might want to go. So guess who gets stuck in the public school that everybody wants to flee? The poor. And they have no ability to do anything else And so then they actually get a worse education a lot of times. And then guess what? A poor education usually corresponds to further poverty. And guess what happens to the next generation which they have no choice about? Do you see how this happens? These webs of structural poverty and injustice that it's, it's people acting in their best intentions. Parents just want to give the best education possible to their kids. And that's great and that's wonderful and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the structure of the system pushes its boot down on a specific class of people. And Jesus comes and He says, I am here to proclaim good news to the poor. Lazarus was an undefended member of the lower class lying at the rich man's gate. And the rich man passed him by. This is not just accidental structural injustice. This is intentional cold-heartedness. Here's here's a man lying at his gate who looks gross, sores all over his body. His dogs are licking him all over the place. And you know what? The rich man does probably what I would also do. That is gross and uncomfortable and passes him by. And then the heart of God is revealed. Because it's, the, it's Lazarus that finds himself in Abraham's bosom in the side of comfort and solace. And it is the rich man who is in Hades. Judged for this apparent lack of generosity. Now, Am I saying that the resolution to this is that you need to just give more money or you'd have to send your kids to public school? No. Here is the truth about the kingdom. It's not just that poor people are the biggest recipients of the coming of the kingdom. It's only poor people who are recipients of the kingdom. It is only the poor. The problem that you and I have today when we look at ourselves, uh, often from a middle class point, point of view, looking at lower class people, is that you can think, I, and you may not even say this consciously, but you say it in, in your actions, you say it if you're like me, in the, the, disp, the, the just not even considering them from their point of view. When you think that you are better than the poor, 
you fundamentally misunderstand. You and I, we are poor ones. There are no middle class residents of the kingdom. The only disposition we have before the kingdom of the kingdom is that of absolute and abject poverty. There, is no, there are none of us that have a middle class trade with the king of the kingdom. When we think that the kingdom is the place that we should be because we're cleaned up people, generous, well-educated, pretty decent people, the kingdom is where we deserve to be. You do not understand who you are. The rich man in the parable, he was the one who ultimately was totally spiritually bankrupt and dependent on his own self-sufficiency. You and I are the impoverished ones. So that has ramifications both here and in the future. You and I are not allowed to pass by the issue of poverty. To do so is unbiblical. To look at the poor as as an alternative class that really should just get their act together is really to despise yourself. And it's unbiblical and unacceptable. In this life right now, if you are not sure what to do, if your solution for poverty is just to hope that people get their stuff together and figure it out, now is the time to change. If you don't know where to go, if you're a part of this church, if you don't know where to go to help take care of the poor, please look around you. Literally look around where you are at this moment. You are at Owen Middle School. These people, a lot of them have no means to escape structural poverty. In our valley, many kids go through summers, go through weekends without having a reliable food source. They come to Owen Middle School. If you don't know where else to do anything about poverty in your life, if you can do very, very little, do a little here. Come to this place, Wednesday, October 4th, and many other times throughout this year, and give of yourself. If you are not rich in money, you are rich in skill and in labor, give some of that. The poor are here, right here at this school. And if you are living your life with these subterranean ideas that God is somehow in my debt, I am an attractive participant, I am a merited member of the kingdom of God, today is the day to leave that nonsense behind. You and I are better than no one. We come into the kingdom as beggars. 
We do not claw ourselves to the table and by our own effort get to be in Jesus' kingdom and earn ourselves at a seat. And we do not come all nicely clean and fresh and pampered and deodorized and acceptable to all who look at us and think that we have made our way to Jesus' kingdom. You and I are the ones on the highways and the byways and the dark alleys and the gutters, spiritual paupers who have nothing, nothing, and are clothed in the robes of the king out of his pure generosity. The kingdom is only for the poor. It is good news for the economic poor now, now, and maybe more extravagantly than any other class. But the kingdom is only for the poor who recognize spiritually they have nothing to offer or trade God. We worship a king who exchanged the riches of heaven and chose for himself the poverty of this world, who was homeless and hung out with the lower class so that we would never think that Jesus was the cool option for the cool kids with the nice stuff. Jesus was for me the poorest of the poor. And He has made me a beggar, a son in His kingdom. He has invited me, a pauper, to sit like a prince. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. We are Lazarus people, now and forever to the glory of God. I'm going to pray and I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are not like you as we should be. We are tight-fisted in our hearts and with our goods. We often buy into the lie of this world that we should not give because our own security is at stake and We treasure our possessions far more than we should. I confess, Jesus, that I am far, far short of the mark of generosity that you have laid down for me. I pray, God, that you would soften our hearts together, that as a community we might see that the kingdom of God is good news for the poor both the economic poor in our midst and for the spiritually poor that we all are. God, I pray that we, would not just, uh, instru- that we would not just spiritualize and wipe away the message of the gospel, that we would see that we have been drawn into a kingdom that is made for those who are from every race and creed and socioeconomic status to come in and receive the generosity of Jesus. Soften our hearts, Lord Jesus, and usher us into your kingdom. Let your kingdom grow, Jesus. Amen.